Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Coming up on Studios America, Leon Wolf joins us for an extended interview about his expose into COVID's origins. You're not going to want to miss this. Uh, Twitter, will it finally be held accountable? for their unwarranted censorship of the New York Post and the Hunter Biden story. Probably not. That's a spoiler alert, but that's coming too. And we all have that one person in our lives who's a complete a-hole and is constantly mocking the deaths of unvaccinated coronavirus patients. I mean, that's in everybody's feed, right? Even if you don't have someone like that, the mainstream media has you covered. So let's do COVID death shaming. Stu does America. Sometimes you do a show and it just helps you just to lose faith in all of humanity. And that's where we are today. Get ready, America. You're about to lose what little faith you had left in the fellow human being you might interact with on an average day. It's this whole thing. It's happening all over the place. You have to have noticed it by now. The media reveling, seemingly, in the fact that someone who was a coronavirus skeptic or a coronavirus vaccine skeptic dying from the coronavirus. It's the greatest thing in the world to some people in the media. And it's, um, what's the word, revolting. This is just a basic sort of guideline of humanity here. If you are the type of person who's excited because someone you disagree with on vaccines is dead or dying or sick or got the coronavirus, you're a bad person. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's really basic uh, sort of uh, baseline rule of humanity. We root for people to be healthy and alive. I know it's a crazy idea, something we're going to work on in the future. But come with me on this little journey, shall we? Because this is going to be a lot of fun. Get ready to just have your the warm cockles of your heart uh, just spring into life here. Because this is going to be... This is a tough one. Okay, let's start here. This is um, from uh, Huffington Post, and they have the headline, Daughter blames Tucker Carlson's misinformation for playing a role in da uh, co dad's COVID-19 death. Playing a role, okay, let's listen to the clip here. This is what she said uh, on a show, again, on CNN, just a random daughter and, and, uh, and wife, I believe, of a guy who passed away from coronavirus, one of over 600,000 people, sadly, in this country who have died. Here is the exchange. Why was he so hesitant to get vaccinated, Katie? Uh, there, there's multiple reasons, I think, uh, one of which was some of the media that he ingested. He wasn't hmm. by any means far right. He was right in the middle and he consumed media from both sides. Hmm. And just some of the misinformation on one of those sides made him hesitant. Mm -hmm. So he was going to wait for FDA approval. Hmm? But by wait. the time that Pfizer had been approved, it was already too late. Oh, Pfizer got the full FDA approval and your father was already sick. He watched some Tucker Carlson videos on YouTube 
uh, and some of those videos involved some misinformation about vaccines, mm. and I believe that that played a role. Look, it's two kids, obviously, in that clip, uh, kids of this dad, and it's incredibly difficult to watch that because they're in real pain. And you know what? Look, I think there is a lot of misinformation out there about vaccines. We've talked about it a million times on this particular program. But when you listen to what she said, she said she watched some of these YouTube videos. And so he decided to wait for FDA approval of the vaccine. Well, the FDA waited and waited and waited with no good reason not to approve the vaccine for a really long time. And this is probably not a story that is completely unique. Is that Tucker Carlson's fault that the FDA didn't approve the vaccine? What would Tucker Carlson have to do with that? But the media pounced on it because the media loves these stories. They can act all somber and sad, but what they want is to put it in the face of someone who they disagree with. And if you don't believe me, you think this is a one-time thing. It's, not, it's really not. Let me just give you a couple of examples here. Here's Phil Valentine, radio host who scoffed at COVID, then urged his followers to get vaccinated, dies. Now, Phil Valentine, we've talked about on the show. He's a big, he was a big time talk show host. I mean, one of, you know, certainly on the top 100 list that they release every year. Uh, he's a guy who was a national talk show host, a, a figure of notoriety. You can understand this being noted. When you look into what Phil Valentine said about vaccines, I mean, largely they were not anti-vax type claims, but they wanted to use that as a story to talk about. But that one, he's a big personality. I can understand why that one would get covered. How about this one? A trio of conservative radio hosts died of COVID. Will their deaths change vaccine resistance? Okay, well, they're talk show hosts. And the other two, other than Phil, were not quite as prominent maybe, but still talk show hosts. They were opinion guys. They gave their opinion. Okay, maybe you can justify co covering those. How about this? A nurse's training didn't protect her from vaccine misinformation. Now she's one of the victims of COVID-19. That's from CNN. Good morning, America. Unvaccinated single mom dies of COVID-19, leaving four children behind. A terrible story, but is it national news? Not typically, right? That wouldn't normally be national news. How about this? Anti-vaxxer mother and daughter die from COVID in Belfast Hospital. Okay. I mean, I how about this from YouTube, Alabama Pickers, couple known for reselling and vaccine opposition, both dead of COVID. Washington Post, a mom of four who died of COVID after her, uh, her husband makes one final wish. Make sure my kids get vaccinated. Unvaccinated couple die of COVID-19 hours apart, leaving behind two teens. Unvaccinated pregnant nurse who died of COVID wrote she was praying for a miracle in final post. And you like this one, too, because they put quotes around praying just to make sure, you know, I mean, people doesn't support the praying part of this. This is just her. These are her words. She was praying. We can go through this. Honestly, there's hundreds of these that we can found. They've come to the point now where they put together an entire website called sorryantivaxer.com where they just rotate through regular people who may have said something, I don't know, a bit skeptical about COVID or the vaccines at some point or another. And then they just put them on the site to further the grieving 
of, I guess, their family members. I don't know what the purpose of this is. They say it's to get people vaccinated. Now, of course, we don't know what would have happened in the alternate reality where they were where they were vaccinated. But as you, we've covered on this program, I think there's a good chance they would have been able to avoid the most negative consequences here. However, you can make those arguments without dancing on people's graves. And over and over again, the media continues to approach these stories this way. Hey, look, we've been yelling at you to get vaccinated. You don't listen. Now look what happened to you, sucker. That's what they want to convey to people over and over and over again. What kind of person sits around and thinks about life this way? What kind of person does this? And I guess the answer is almost everyone in the media. Almost everyone in the media seems to go down these exact roads. And these narratives are not random, guys. They're not random. You know, I've, I've told this story, I think, once or twice before, but I was on a call uh, once uh, for, it was basically, uh, it's a media call for about statistics about COVID. And, you know, they were helping, trying to get media members to understand what these statistics meant, how they were calculated. You know, I live a really exciting life, let me tell you. And the, the reporters were discussing what they were learning here. And what they said was like, look, you know, maybe given the information that had just been conveyed to the group, Maybe what we should do is uh, try covering more stories of family members who are suffering from these from the bad consequences of this. In other words, it wasn't like a, a um, it was like a, an idea of how to move the readership, how to move the consumers of media. Maybe we should focus on this type of story. That stuff does happen. I mean, it does happen. I mean, people are people and they get into this business a lot of times because they want to move people's opinion and they pick stories like this because they they want to be able uh, to uh, come with a specific outcome. And in this case, it's not it's, it's not I don't think it's I don't think it's trying to get unvaccinated people vaccinated. Maybe it is in some cases. You know, I think you look at these stories and they're tough to read. I mean, these are, as you see, a bunch of people, sometimes they're younger on the younger side. Sometimes they have kids. And to watch that family go through that and, you know, for something that, you know, um, may or may not have been uh, a necessary outcome of, of the pandemic. It's really tough to read. And I think everybody, at least everyone I know, just feels sad for the families. You know, you feel terrible that something like this happened. We're in the middle of a pandemic. A lot of really crappy things have happened. But there's another side to this, the side where it's like, hey, we are putting this is essentially like almost like a, a, a mic drop of a tweet right to the left. They are sitting back and saying, you know what? <laughs> We've been telling you, don't be an idiot. Don't don't uh, don't ignore science. Well, look at these idiots. They ignored science, uh, science. Please click on my dumb news story where we can gloat about it. Gloating about other people's suffering is about the lowest form of humanity that is available to you. If that's what you're doing, you're doing it wrong. You're doing life wrong. There's a, you know, I know that we get into, you get into political fights with people all the time. We, you know, we say all sorts of, I mean, I've got a pen right here. This is Nancy Pelosi sucks. I'm not about above saying things that are offensive to the other side. But what I will say is that you know, when life and death of an average regular person is on the line, 
isn't there any part of you that that stops and thinks about the effect on the people around them? Isn't there any part of you that gets there? When we talk about, you know, things like, you know, abortion and the abortion law here in Texas, is there any moment you think about the people that aren't here because of that law? Uh, this is like there is a real thirst in this country right now in the media and uh, online to be able to win an argument at expense of completely disintegrating your own humanity. When you look at someone you don't even know dying and leaving child survivors and to you, you think, hey, here's a good one to tweet. That makes you a bad person. Whether you're right about the vaccines, whether you're wrong about the vaccines, whether you're right about COVID, whether you're wrong about COVID, whether you're right about universal health care, whether you're wrong about it. None of that matters because you can't clear the most basic test of being a human being, having some level of empathy for innocent people and what's going on around them. If you can't clear that hurdle, you're not even clearing the hurdle of being a human being. You're subhuman. So next time you think it's going to be a great idea to retweet one of these stories, think about it for a second. Think about if that's the person you want to be. I, I expect very few in this audience feel that way. But, uh, man, it's more widespread than I really want to consider. Back in a second. So let's talk about things that have fundamentally changed the way we live. You know, I love capitalism. I love capitalism, what it brings to our society. Things that disrupt the way that we go through, you know, life. I mean, streaming services. Remember when you used to get an envelope from Netflix and they had like a DVD in it? And that was like, whoa, they'll mail you movies. Do you remember this? It's not that long ago. Um, it's we have these innovations that sort of turn things upside down. You get streaming. Netflix is, I remember when Netflix was like, oh, we're only going to do streaming now. It seemed crazy. It seemed like they were jumping the gun by a lot. And all of a sudden, it's the only thing we ever do. Um, Ladder is an insurance company who basically took the life insurance industry and flipped it upside down and shook out all the uh, inefficiencies. Before Ladder, if you wanted to get life insurance, you had to drive across town and sit through a sales pitch and fill out you know, a ton of paperwork and all that stuff. And then it's like six to eight weeks to find out if you've been approved. It's a freaking hassle. Plus, you get the zillion phone calls from everyone trying to bundle all of your other insurances together. Ugh. Now with Ladder, you can get fast, affordable term life insurance without even leaving home. It's 100% digital when you apply for $3 million or less in coverage. No doctors, no needles, no paperwork. If you're between the ages of 20 and 60, if you need coverage and you want to team up with a company that is redeeming life insurance, choose Ladder. Go to ladderlife.com slash stew today. See if you're instantly approved. It's L-A-D-D-E-R dot, uh, excuse me, L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash stew. Remember the slash stew part of the address because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Ladderlife.com slash stew. I'm happy to welcome back to the program Leon Wolf. He's the managing editor of The Blaze and one of the authors of the new comprehensive six-part expose on the origins of COVID. It's called Cash, COVID, and Cover-Up. I'll be tweeting out a link to uh, his work shortly. Be sure to check it out. Leon, how's it going? 
It's going good. How are you, Stu? Really well, really well. I mean, this is a really good series and it goes really in depth. I feel like you've done a public service here because there are so many names. There's so many people we may not be familiar with, not to mention adding on to this. There's so many Internet rumors and lies and try to, to try to dig through to get to what's actually true. You put this together in a really understandable way and it's great work. Well, thank you. You know, we still have three more parts to go. We got three, three down, three to go. But you're right. It, the, the volume of it is really quite daunting. And, um, you know, one of the things that that Chris and I did when we started this was to try to make a lot of it, you know, digestible to, to wade through the signal, you know, versus the noise and, and try to find what was reliable, you know, what, what we could put out there, what we could say confidently that we know, what questions still need to be asked and still make it in a digestible format. Our latest entry was a little over 5,000 words, so I'm not entirely sure how successful we were at that, but probably still shorter than a lot of the material that you read out there. And I hope that people, I'm encouraged to see a lot of other places, even places that are not like typically associated with being like conservative slash libertarian media are picking this up. Washington Post of all places had a really good piece a couple of weeks ago on the, on the gain of function controversy that I thought was shockingly fair and thorough. So it, it's getting out there slowly but surely, I think. Yeah, it's taken a while. Uh, you and Chris Pendolfo have done a great job putting this together. I want to give you a kind of let me give a, a couple clips here uh, to the audience and we can talk about them because um, that that the lack of media interest early on was really perplexing. Uh, you guys write the national media spent endless hours speculating without any factual basis about the context with Russia of every obscure member of Trump's team. Surely they would have interest in whether the man who was fast becoming the face of the Trump response to coronavirus was complicit even indirectly with the release of the virus into the world. It turned out they would not. They had no interest. It's almost like it feels like we're going back in a time warp that, you know, Fauci was associated with Trump's response. I mean, we've got such a long journey here, but there was never that like right. salacious sort of, you know, bloodlust to go after a Trump official with Fauci. He was able to avoid that. It's it's really and truly incredible for somebody who covered the entirety of the Trump administration. And you think about um, not just Trump, but everybody who is in his cabinet from from Betsy DeVos to, you know, Rex Tillerson, you know, on down the line, Barr, were all continually called before Congress and grilled about the most inconsequential things. Mm. Um, and here you had probably the, the defining issue of Trump's presidency in the middle of an election year. And the face of his team, like his response team, there was at least a, a question as to whether he was connected with the release of the virus to the public. Now, I, I, I'm, I was just amazed that no one seemed to be interested in even looking at that, given the level of interest in ridiculous things that turned out to be nothing uh, over the course of, of Trump's presidency. And I think that what happened, is, as we kind of talk about, is that rightly or wrongly, Fauci kind of became the guy that liberals hung the entire coronavirus response edifice upon, you know, the masks, the social distancing, the shutdowns, they just, if, if Fauci fell, they believed that all of that would fall. He became the, even mm -hmm. though he worked for Trump, at least nominally, they believed that if Fauci went down, that all of these things that he was uh, standing for would go down with him. And so they just developed this protect him at, at all costs mentality 
uh, on the belief that that was basically the only thing keeping those things going. And I, I don't. It's unfortunate, and I think that it's important that we could divorce that both on both sides. I don't think that people should be asking this question of, of, of Fauci just in the hopes that it will get all of the things that he stands for out of the way, like the masks and the, and the you know the vaccines or whatever it is that people don't like that he's pushing. This is an important question. This is this is the most important story event of our lifetimes, I think. And the most important thing out of out of everything, like more important than the mask, more important than the vaccines, more important than anything else, I think, is making sure it doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think that should be number one in everybody's minds. And to the extent that it might have been done by research that our tax dollars funded, we should be aggressively getting to the bottom of that to figure out what we need to do better next time so that that doesn't happen. Yeah. And I, I'm perplexed to not see that response happening. Yeah, and, and, and you guys could go into this quite a bit uh, as you go through the series. Um, talking, let's go into gain of function a little bit here because this is something that I think people, just like, as you point out in one of the pieces, remember back to January 2020 when Anthony Fauci wasn't famous. Uh, but it's true. It's like it feels like another world. Gain of function is a new term to most people. And all of a sudden, people are expected to be experts on it. But this has a, a background going back to 2011. You guys write about this. Whatever the possible benefits of gain of function research, it obviously comes with risk. One particular experiment conducted in 2011 involved so much obvious risk that many research scientists began to raise the alarm about the possibility of a catastrophe if a lab accident occurred. This is uh, people don't realize that this went back to the Obama administration. I think there's some general knowledge about Obama maybe banning it for some reason. But like this, this, this sort of research has been really controversial among scientists for a good amount of time. Yeah, it, it really has. There's there's a guy uh, from Rutgers, Richard uh, Ebright, who's been doing a, a human's work talking about this for years and years and years. And he's on Twitter. I recommend everybody follow him. He's He's been a great resource and source of information about this. He's one of, one of the ones raising the alarm. This, this research back in 2011, they took a strain of bird flu that was estimated to have a 60% mortality rate. 60%. Six zero, right? More than half, more than half fatality rate, and made it transmissible among ferrets, which apparently are the most, the closest relative to humans in terms of replicating virus pathogenicity. So they made it basically one step away from being transmissible among humans. And scientists, this was before this, you know, this pandemic. This was before this was a political issue. This is just scientists. Many scientists were like, "Hey, wait a minute." They were going to publish a study. Here's how we did it. And many scientists, like, you can't put that in a published scientific journal. What if, you know, terrorists or Al Qaeda got a hold of this and mm. figured out how to do it? You know, that would obviously they would have in their hands a weapon that could kill more than half the world before we got a handle on this. Uh, and so there was a tremendous amount of, of pushback. There was a tremendous amount of concern. And yeah, the Obama administration, you know, actually banned this research. And she leading the pushback of, of saying, you know, hey, no, we shouldn't ban it. We need to keep doing it was was Fauci and, and his his boss, like his nominal boss, you know, Collins. I guess he technically works for Collins, even though he's paid more than Collins. Um, you know, this is like um, and so he has been at the forefront of this, of pushing back and saying that this was necessary. So I think that even though his his actual connection to the potential research that may, we don't know. I, I stress to say, and we try to say this repeatedly, we don't know. It, and we won't know probably 
maybe ever, thanks to the, the efforts that the Chinese have undertaken to bury the truth, which we're going to get into a lot in the next part of the series. Um, but but his, his connection personally was rather tenuous to the actual research project that, that may have been at the root of this. But he certainly has been at the forefront of, of aggressively arguing that this kind of research should continue. Um, and so I think that that is probably the reason that he has felt a level of concern in wanting to, you know, cover his butt about this uh, throughout the course of, of, of the last year and a half. Yeah, you know, and, and, and Leon, like he had uh, people who are on the left who might love Fauci today need to realize that, like, you know, Barack Obama tried to shut this down. And he just evaded uh, their efforts to do so. Um, you go through this uh, in the piece as well. The Obama administration's moratorium contained a clause granting exemptions, quote, if he the head of funding agency determines research is urgently necessary to protect public health or national security. And NIH Director Collins' discretion, virtually every gain-of-function study that applied for an exemption reportedly received one. The moratorium only existed on paper, and in officials at the NIH worked behind the scenes to have even those illusory uh, restrictions of funding for gain of function studies revoked. This is the problem is they set up a, a situation where they had an exemption if they said it was okay. All right. the people who wanted this research to continue just were able to continually pass themselves through this little loophole that they called an exemption and, and all this research can, just kept going. Right. And this is not, and I think that it's important for people to understand, this is not just us. This is not just Leon Wolf and Chris Pandolfo saying this. All of that information is, is was confirmed by reporting from the Washington Post. So, I mean, people, for whatever reason, don't want to listen to us. And I would, I would encourage everyone, especially all of our liberal friends, to go read that Washington Post article and, and look for one specific thing, because I read it at some great length. And, and look at it and look at the number of times that the Washington Post attempted to get comment from people in CDC and NIAID, NIH, various government health agencies, and were stonewalled. Now, it's one thing for for people, you know, in the Biden administration not to return my emails asking for comment about this other thing, you know. It's another thing entirely for multiple, and there were, it was over and over again, so-and-so would not comment, so-and-so would not respond to our mm. comments, to the Washington Post. And, and I think that it's indicative of the fact that these agencies have just kind of gone turtle a little bit. I think that they're they're just they hope that if they just crawl into their shell, that everybody will forget about this and it will all go away, uh, you know, by the time that the Biden administration is over. And who knows, they might be right, because the difficult thing about this is, is it's hard to kind of get into the particulars about this without talking about some scientific concepts that tend to make people's eyes, you know, kind of glaze over a little bit. Um, but it's it's an important thing, and, and I hope that people will understand at least enough to know that questions should be asked. Yeah, in, in, in a very serious way. Okay, um, well, hang, on, hang tight for one second, Leon. We're going to come back in a second. I want to leave people with how you left uh, ended part two of uh, your investigation here, uh, because it goes to the motivation. Uh, why did all this happen? Why did they want to cover this up so much? Uh, you're right. And so... Faced with the threat of the extinction of their entire profession, the world's prominent virologists, joined by the man who was responsible for funding so many of them, sat down to formulate a response. We'll get into that response next.
We're back with more with uh, Leon Wolf, managing editor of The Blaze. They're a very important series uh, him and Chris Pandolfo put together uh, for TheBlaze.com, Cash, COVID, and Cover-Up. Uh, there's three parts out now. It's a six-part series. It can bring you really through all of this. Because I think, uh, Leon, people have this general uh, understanding of the concept of what may have happened here, right? Fauci was uh, delivering funding to some of these organizations. They were doing research that could have resulted in this. And there was some squashing of it in the media. You guys go into real depth on how the cover-up kind of came together. And it's really, without understanding the detail of it, it's hard to, over, to, to, to overstate how bizarre it was. I mean, it was really this strange, incestuous process where the doctors and the scientists who were being um, implicated in this potential scandal were also the ones allowed to exonerate themselves. Yeah, it's it's something that would really not happen in any other walk of life. And I think that the, the only reason that's it's been able to happen in this is because it's a subject about which people don't have like a basic level of understanding. You talk about some of the biology and the chemistry involved with tinkering around with viruses, you know, you're not going to, most people are not going to be able to grasp. And that's one of the things, quite frankly, that kept me from digging into this story sooner than I did was, you know, it, it, it gets hard. Like they put out these papers um, the, the Lancet letter and the, the, the paper, The Proximal Origins of, of SARS-CoV-2. And in, in, unless you really are dedicated to sitting down and digging through with, with a dictionary handy to even understand what they're saying, much less put a critical eye towards is this correct or not. Um, so it, it's definitely is a challenge uh, for the for the average person to undertake. But, you know, it, it, it can be an important one. And. I think that's what's allowed them to get away with it because I, I think that people have not understood additionally the connections though. They don't have, they haven't understood that it's it's a very small community. Like the the number of people worldwide who are scientists who study this kind of things and who make these chimeric viruses is, is really pretty small. It's it's a relatively small community. So they might not understand, you know, how is Dashik connected with Ralph Barrick? How is Ralph Barrick connected with Xi Sheng Li? How are they all connected with Fauci? You know, they, they appear on the surface to be this group of just independent, highly respected scientists, but really when you start to understand the relationships, they're all, they're all buddies and they're all in this thing together. And I think that that's the important thing that you touched on at the end of, of last period. Even if it hadn't been any taxpayer funding, even if there was no connection between NIAID directly and the work that was going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which, by the way, $800,000 is a lot of money to you and I, but maybe not so much to a, a government agency, right? And the, the overall you know, scope of their budget, it's not a huge piece of what they were funding. But the point is, if people found out that people were doing, scientists were doing this kind of work, monkeying around with viruses to make them more contagious, and lo and behold, one of those viruses got out to a lab worker and caused millions of people worldwide to die, even if you take the funding angle out of it, they understood that would be the end. That's the end of their whole way of life. They, the, the public outcry demanding a shutdown of this entire industry would be overwhelming. Right. I mean, I think mm -hmm. it would be. I oh, would assume I, that. So that's, you know, where I think this this comes from. And again, if you want to look at the best the best possible light on this, I mean, you know, they think this is important research. It's not even just them protecting their industry like they think this is important research might do good at some point. They can't allow this to be the perception. And they acted like they 
could not allow it to be the perception. Uh, let me give this is uh, part uh, three, two, guys. Um, uh, Dashik, one of the one of the uh, scientists you mentioned, uh, worked in the background to recruit more colleagues and associates to sign his statement. There were several ever uh, the Lancet letter was one of them. Several efforts to call essentially the lab leak theory a conspiracy. Um, this one of this uh, this particular one was was intended to authoritatively discredit the lab lock, uh, lab leak hypothesis. Barrick, another one another one of the scientists, a leading gain of function researcher, was also consulted for the draft. But Dashik told him it would be best if he didn't add his name to it, so that so he has some distance from us and therefore doesn't work in a counterproductive way. Barrick agreed in reply, writing, "Otherwise, it looks self-serving and we lose impact." This is manipulation the news is what it is and they knew what they were doing they understood if they were essentially advocating for their own innocence no one would buy it so they tried to do it behind the scenes and it's all caught on these emails these are there's no question that they did this this is a known yeah and it's it's really galling to some respect that so many so many of these emails remain entirely redacted Mm. Um, I, I, I really feel like in the public interest, almost everything that is currently redacted should be unredacted. The, the, the stakes here are just too high. And I understand, you know, look, I'm an attorney by background. I, I definitely understand the benefits of allowing people to, ha you know, speak their opinions freely without fear that they're going to be put under the public microscope so many, you know, years later, people might not understand the context. But all of these discussions that these scientists had. We know maybe less than 10 percent, you know, because wow. of the extent of the redactions. Like if you've looked at the documents, I mean, there's just page after page, just wholly and entirely redacted entire emails, except for the, the to and from fields redacted, like that go on for two or three pages. It's it's absolutely shocking. And it's equally shocking to some respect that and this is one of the things that we mentioned in our piece, you know, Fauci works for, you know, the top of his chain of command is Donald Trump at the time that all of this is happening. Mm -hmm. There is no indication in any of these communications that the president, the vice president, anyone higher up in the administration than Fauci himself was made aware of these discussions that they were happening, what the substance of them was, you know, what, but I don't see anywhere that the president of the United States was ever informed that these scientists from all over the world we're frantically discussing the possibility that this virus might have been, you know, leaked from this lab, might have been generated in a lab. Not, and I'm not saying necessarily as a bioweapon, but just as part of like some experiment, you know, gone wrong, and it got out. Um, and that's shocking. That ought to be shocking to us. Uh, I, I think uh, it, it's it's worse to me uh, than the, you know, the f thing that General Milley is accused of doing. I think. Uh, because it, it, it's, I think, just a more important issue just because of the gravity of what's happened with this coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, and I think you could understand, like, s some redactions. Uh, like, if the redactions uh, of some of the stuff that went on with Russia, for example, well, this foreign affairs. Like, if there was documents that came out about, you know, Biden's handling of the Iran uh, nuclear deal, you could see why a lot of that would be redacted. Here, you know, unless they're talking about China leaking the virus what's the international risk here uh, you know there's no reason to be redacting 90 percent of these documents when we're talking about a virus and how our own country decided to try to handle it unless they're protecting people and it does seem like that's part of it i agree i, I can't you know 
I, I can't I can't think of a feasible reason for it. I mean, are they protecting information that might you know lead to the creation of a bioweapon? I, I can't see that. Are they giving away some state secret that would compromise United States national security? I don't know what the argument is for the redactions. And I, it's, it's it's interesting to me. I saw about a week and a half ago, actually, a reporter for The Nation, which is you know a borderline communist publication, <laughs> is now. Uh, going to court and trying to challenge a lot of these redactions. Mm. Uh, so I mean, hopefully, look, there's just a public interest right to know. And I think that should transcend right, left, center, libertarian. I think I think everybody has a right to know at this point, um, you know, yeah. after all of the deaths and the sickness and, and, and the misery that's come with this pandemic, uh, the public has a right to know how this happened. And uh, how, how dare these people convene in secret, not inform their superiors, not inform us, the public, and even a year and a half later, we have no idea 90% of what they said. It's amazing. I mean, I remember when the Enron emails came out, there are a lot of people like talking about affairs. Maybe they're just, they're, maybe everyone was sleeping with each other and they're just yeah. doing it for personal protection. I don't know. Um, I want to give you one more part, part here because of, of, of looking at sort of this incestuous peer review process. This is something amazing that you caught in, in part three of the report. Barrick, again, one of the scientists we've been talking about, was consulted beforehand about what the paper should say. This is supposedly a critique that could involve Barrick himself. According to emails unearthed by U.S. Right to Know, Barrick was provided with an advanced copy of the paper by Sue and asked for comments and revisions, a paper that could have been about him. Perhaps understanding how bad such an arrangement would look, Barrick responded to Sue's request that he review the paper by saying, sure, but I don't want to be cited as having commented prior to submission. Sue agreed to keep Barrick's name out of the paper, and Barrick agreed to redline the paper that would exonerate him. This, in any other context, is a massive scandal, Leon. Yeah, it's pretty shocking. You know, Ralph Barrick, for, for, for your watchers who don't know ralph barrick is pretty much the, the the michael jordan of coronavirus gain of function research okay <laughs> he is like the, the very top of this field and the reason that he's so central to this story is that he uh, trained the head researcher at the wuhan institute of virology the you know ji sheng li the, the the so-called bat lady the chinese bat lady i didn't come up with that name for she that's her name for herself by the way um <laughs> You know, he trained her how to do it. And, and the, the general understanding is that when the moratorium came down in the United States, the research, they just moved the research over to China. So I have no proof that Ralph Barrick personally did anything in connection with this or anything at all. But he is the person in the United States who would be the, the most number one brunt of pointed questions being asked if it turned out that this virus did in fact leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology and in fact that it was engineered because he's the one who taught him how to do it. Uh, so it's, mm. he's also, in addition to that, I mean, he's just a giant in this field. Like I, like I said, he, the average person has no idea who Ralph Barrick is. Everybody in this field knows who, knows who Ralph Barrick is. So there's a, an institutional desire to protect probably the most prominent scientist in this entire field and so the, the paper that would serve basically to exonerate him above anybody else in this entire country is given to him to edit and revise before it's published. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's not it's not something you would find it being accepted anywhere else, but it's not 
nobody seems to bat an eye about it for the most part. Amazing. Uh, this is a piece you have to read. Uh, Cash, COVID, and Cover Up Part 1, 2, and 3 are out now. 4, 5, and 6 are on the way. Chris Pandolfo along with Leon Wolf, Managing Editor of The Blaze. Make sure you check that out. We'll tweet it out as well from our Twitter page. Leon, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. All right. Do you like uh, uh, have to have a great snack uh, sometime in the day? You're just you're running out of you're a little hungry. You're, you've come to the end of your rope. It's time to just down like three Milky Way bars, right? That's what you do. No, you don't have to do that. Go to Built Bar instead. Built Bar is here to save the day. They've got all sorts of great flavors, uh, mint brownie, double chocolate, cookies and cream, salted caramel, coconut, all sorts of great flavors. I think they have nine of them that come in the mixed box. You can get that. Uh, we, they just came out with some like banana, um, it was almost like a banana pudding flavor, I think. That was like, a, they had these puffs. They're like Charleston Chews. I, they've got everything. Just go to built.com. You'll find out they, these are all healthy. They're not just delicious candy bar type things. They're actually good for you. Stu15 is the promo code to save 15% off your first order. Promo code is Stu15 at built.com. You'll get 15% off now at built.com with the code Stu15. Here's a weird story. Ben Schreckinger's Biden's the inside the, fir the first family's 50 year rise to power. It took him 50 years. Uh, it's out today. It's a new book. Uh, finds evidence that some of the purported Hunter Biden laptop material is genuine. What? Including two emails at the center of last October's controversy. What? A person who has independent access to Hunter Biden's emails confirmed he did receive a 2015 email from a Ukrainian businessman thanking him for the chance to meet Joe Biden. Same goes for a 2017 email in which a proposed equity breakdown of a venture with a Chinese energy executive includes the line, quote, 10 held by H for the big guy, big guy being Joe Biden. Emails released by a Swedish government agency also match emails in the leaked cash. And two people who corresponded with Hunter Biden confirmed emails from the cash were genuine. As uh, Tyler Carden points out, a reminder, Twitter and Facebook were so convinced this true story was fake news, they banned it from their platforms. Twitter went further and actually suspended the New York Post account for accurately reporting a story of great public interest during a general election. Look, we all know Hunter Biden has lost approximately 143,000 laptops across the country. It is legitimately incredible how crazy that ha story has been. You can be part of it. You can have your own Hunter Biden laptop with a new Hunter Biden laptop case at HunterBidenLaptopCase.com. Yes, it's a laptop case. It's real. <laughs> it says property of Hunter Biden on it. Your friends will love it. You will love it. And hopefully, it doesn't mean you're going to lose your laptop as frequently as Hunter Biden. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and like and do all the things you're supposed to do. Make us your one of our, your favorites that will uh, help us out as well. Uh, this comment comes in from yesterday's show. I agree. Since Tony, Tony, Tony is back together, all COVID restrictions should be removed immediately so we can uplift our spirits. It's true. Look, if the San Francisco mayor says it's true, then it's true. Also, make sure to review the program wherever you happen to listen to us on podcast. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. Great shows. Uh, great show as always. Glad I found all you guys and gals on the blaze. Ooh, that uh, that uh, that hurts. That that ignores all of our non-binary hosts.
Uh, so please fix that on the review. But thank you so much for leaving it. Remember, when you leave a good review for us, it's not only good for us, it hurts other podcasts. And that's the most important thing. OK, so here's what happened. A uh, couple people, they're in New Zealand, they're in Auckland, they're in level four restrictions. They get pulled over. They've got contraband in the back of the car. What is it? KFC. Yes, we've come to the point of the pandemic where people are smuggling Kentucky Fried Chicken in their trunks. That is where, that's where we are, ladies and gentlemen. And look, I, there have been moments where I would have broken all sorts of laws for fast food, so I'm with you on that. Plus, a Taco Bell's usually attached, makes it even better. Uh, look, if your country's gang members are starting to smuggle sma- uh, you know, fat, fast food instead of methamphetamine, you've probably gone a little too far with your lockdown requirements. I'm just saying, I'm throwing that out there. Who knows? We will uh, see you tomorrow. Good night.